0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Writer's Way podcast. I'm your host, Justin DeMarco. Today, I'm thrilled to have one of my best friends on the planet and the editor in chief of Eat This, Not That, Faye Brennan on the show. Not only is Faye one of the hardest working and most down to earth people in the industry, she's also probably one of the last writers and editors to truly live through the devil wears Prada type of magazine experience. Before becoming the editor-in-chief of Eat This, Not That, overseeing all digital content for the brand, she was previously the Sex and Relationships Director at Cosmopolitan. She has also held editorial roles at Women's Health, Wellbone Magazine, YourTango.com, BettyConfidential.com, and she founded M Magazine at Emerson College, where we both attended. In fact, Faye was one of my first friends at Emerson, if not my first Emerson friend. Faye has also hosted a podcast, Single Swipe Repeat, which you can check out wherever you listen to your podcast. And she has also appeared on Fox and Friends, pix 11, Bold TV, Evine, Better TV, and a ton of national radio. Just because I want to brag about one of my best friends a little bit more, since joining Eat This, Not That in February 2020, Faye has grown eatthis.com from 4 million unique visitors a month to 20 million. Pretty cool, right? So to give you an idea of how big the reach of eatthis.com is, it reaches almost one-third of the United States population, or more than 110 million annual users. Yeah, that's right. I research before guests come on the show. And according to Comscore, how do you like that? Eat This Not That is now the third most read food site on the internet after only two other sites that aren't worth mentioning because Eat This Not That has a much faster rate of growth compared to many of the leading health and wellness competitors. Today, Faye leads a small but talented staff of industry veterans with extensive resumes in news, nutrition, health, and lifestyle reporting, writing, and editing. She also has an incredible crew of freelancers who write for the site, which I am not part of, even though Faye has pretty much gotten me every freelance writing gig that I've ever had. That's a fact. This March, Eat This, Not That launched their medical expert board made up of certified and world-renowned nutritionists, dieticians, doctors, personal trainers, chefs, and wellness experts who regularly contribute to and review their content. Eat This, Not That also has over 1 million Facebook followers and just hit 500,000 newsletter subscribers, which I saw on their Insta feed. So how is that for an intro, fee?
1: Oh my God. It's like you don't even need me here. That was so... Thorough and amazing and a trip down memory lane and it's crazy to think that like yes we were best friends and you were my first best friend at Emerson and you still are a very near and dear person to my heart and it's just been crazy to see your career to be on the journey together. And it's just, it's great to be talking to you today.
0: Well, thank you so much, Faye. And that was a perfect transition because I wanna start right at the end of college and the beginning of your Devil Wears Prada-esque start to your magazine career, uh, because I know it was a grind to get to where you're at today. Um, So I, like, I know you're kind of like at the top of the mountain now, but let's start like every step that you had to take to get up there. Um, Totally. so, So after graduating, The economy kind of collapsed for us. It was it was shortly after two thousand eight, the financial crisis, and jobs were hard to come by for everyone. But I feel like the magazine industry was especially hit hard. So, can you Mm -hmm. talk about what you remember uh, after you graduated and you know, kind of trying to get your footing?
1: Yeah. um, So you're totally right. It was a really scary time to graduate and go out into the real world, even though. Um, I was so looking forward to it like after being in Emerson and what a great school to like learn all the skills that you needed for a real-time role out in the real world so I was just like itching to get out there itching to get um, a full-time role at a magazine but literally no one was hiring so after graduation I was applying left and right. I was taking informational interviews at the major publications. So Hearst, Conde Nast, um, just trying to connect with anyone in HR just to be like, hey, let's just have a meeting. Even if you don't have any openings, um, I'd love to just um, get my name in the building in the door um, to see if anything... How did you get that idea? Um, I can't remember who told me to do it exactly but i'm pretty sure it was my professors at emerson um they always said that that was networking networking it's so important um and i think they were 100 percent right uh many of the reasons why i'm here today is because of networking and because of the connections i've made since day one and holding those t- in high regard and making sure that i'm keeping in touch with people uh, but yeah i think it was my professors and Right away, I made it a point to seek out mentors. So reaching out, whether it was cold emailing or asking a friend, do you have anyone in the magazine industry? Do you know anyone who I can maybe like take out to coffee or lunch? And I did that a lot, um, which was really great because, of course, I think if you show how passionate and invested you are in, in getting into this industry and... You clearly have a talent that you could show through your clips, through um, your perseverance. Like at that time, no one was hiring, but there was a site called examiner.com, which I don't know if it still exists, but if it does, that's awesome. But basically, <laughs> you could start your own blog on there. So I did, like probably a few days after graduation. Um, and I started it as like a fashion and lifestyle column in which I was writing about, you know, trends i was seeing out in the world or or shops that i really loved that were local in westchester because i was living at home because i didn't have a job yet. um and then that i could use as clips to show people. so even though i didn't have a ton besides like the work i did in college, i was just like let's hit the ground running. how can i be scrappy? how can i, you know, weasel my way in even if there's not a uh, specific listing online for a job.
0: And well. That's so cool to hear because I didn't even realize in 2008, 2009, that you were doing those coffee meetings and those types of things, because that's something that you taught me, or at least, I mean, you probably told me and tried to teach me that, but I just wasn't <laughs> listening, but something that I learned, you know, maybe a couple of years ago, like the power and the importance of like coffee meetings and getting to know people, uh, you know, just on a one-on-one level, but also, you know, if you can help them or they can help you on a professional level.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I think, I think it goes, it's the extra step, right. Um, that I think sets you apart from the competition, um, that shows again, how invested you are and how serious you are about it. Like anyone who's ever taken me out for coffee have always, um, appreciated that because, as the employer or the person who would be hiring someone it's you hate to feel used and i don't think that that's necessarily what people are are going for when they're applying for a job or trying to get into an industry that's really tough to get into but it's it's a tricky line you have to toe because you can't just you know come in with like try to break down doors and be like, hey, like, give me a job and like, uh, demand some time from you. Where it's like, you really got to earn it. Um, so I, I think it's a good lesson for everyone.
0: I remember one time too, that you told me you accepted a meeting just to talk with one Megan Markle. So can you talk a little bit about how that came about? And I know we're jumping ahead, but on the Topic of just accepting meetings with people. So at the time, Meghan Markle was just—and I don't mean just an actress, but she was an actor uh, yes. on TV. So how did that go down? Yeah, it was.
1: I think it was the second season of Suits was just about to um, debut. So up and coming actress, and I was working at Women's Health at the time. I think I was a associate editor. Um, I held many different roles. At Women's Health, which was fantastic to be able to work my way up that amazing magazine. Um, and yeah, like as working as an editor, oftentimes you get these press releases or offers from PR people who represent whether it's an actor or an actress or a brand or a new show. And they're trying to get publicity, obviously. So they'll reach out to you and be like, hey, can you meet with us? Um, They call it a desk side. They say it'll take about 20 to 30 minutes of my time. They come to my office, like when we were all working in an office, it was really, really cool. A great break in the day that you could learn something new or meet somebody new. Um, And in this case, it was Meghan Markle. Can you meet her, please? She's a great new up and coming actress, you know, season two of Suits is debuting and she has... um, a really strong passion for health and wellness uh, and healthy eating. So she would die to meet somebody at Women's Health. And I'm like, sure, I'll take the meeting. Um, And she comes into the Rodale offices, which were in Midtown at the time. Um, And I met her in a conference room, like in between editing a story. And she was so well-dressed and so incredibly kind and nice And we just had the greatest time because there was no, it wasn't like I was starstruck, which I have been
0: during, you know, some of my
1: interviews and stuff like that. Like like, this podcast episode.
0: I know. (laughs) You're just like, wow. Like you're shaking. (laughs) I can't believe you're on the Writer's Way podcast.
1: (laughs) Exactly, Justin. You know it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, like you could tell that she was so comfortable, but also so genuinely like honor to be there. So it was just a really nice conversation that we had that, even though it was to publicize her, you know, season of her show coming out, it just felt like, wow, I'm really connecting with a real person. And like, what show are you wanting in? And then now, like, fast forward, oh my God, she's a royal. She's one of the most famous people on the planet. And um, anyone I ever get a chance to share that story with, I'm, I just... back her up to say like, no, like when I met her, she was genuinely very nice, honest, like respectable and, you know, genuine human being. So I hope that hasn't changed as her fame has skyrocketed. I'm sure it hasn't, but I'm sure it's tough now.
0: (laughs) Well, have you hit her up now that you're the editor in chief of Eat This (laughs) Not That? I mean, it goes no hand way. in hand. It goes hand in hand no with her way. mission. You gave her I 20 mean, minutes. I think the least she could do true. is give you 20 minutes.
1: It's true. And how amazing would that be if she like, remembered our meaning? Mm-hmm. Um,
0: but no, she I probably can't say does. that. I've hit her up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now back to your journey. So you're grinding, <laughs> you're living at home, you're writing for uh, like an internet startup, examiner.com, mm-hmm. uh, and you're just trying to get clips. You're trying to get your foot in the door. So where do you go from there?
1: So I was also applying to internships because uh, that, at that point, I thought if I could physically get in the door at like a big magazine, I could just you know prove my worth and work my way up. So um, I applied to an internship at InStyle, but then I also applied to this other internship at a website called womenworking.com. And that was a very small site. It was operating out of the owner's apartment on the east side of Manhattan. And um, basically it came down to the two and I wasn't hearing back from InStyle. So I accepted the job at womenworking.com and it was three days a week and I would have to commute to her apartment from my parents' house in Westchester. She paid for my lunch, which was very nice, but that was about it. And, Yeah. About like two days after accepting that job in style, finally called me back and was like, do you want the internship? Oh man, I already accepted this one, but thank God I did because I got so many more clips and experience. Like that was my first job where I was interviewing um, Olympic athletes and um, women in business who were just entrepreneurs or had a super impressive resume or career trajectory. So Getting all of that interview experience right away is something that I don't think I would have gotten at one of the bigger publications Um, as an intern. I interned at many places. I was an intern at Jane Magazine in their beauty closet, and yes, my job was just to organize the beauty closet, so I never touched a lick of coffee. Um, So I think there's something to be said about, you know, yes, of course, we all want to work at like the fabulous and shiny name brands, but. You'll, you'll get a lot more experience if if you consider um, working at a smaller, you know, a smaller joint where it's, you can have much more of a role. So I did that. And then um, for like a whole summer, so I think that was three or four months. It was great experience, gave me a lot of clips. And then I applied to the job at BettyConfidential.com. And I think I applied as a assistant editor um, and I got that job, which was great. It allowed me to move to Manhattan. I was in a tiny one bedroom studio working from home, um, which is funny how it's come full circle. (laughs) Um, And yeah, for that site, I was writing everything under the sun. I was always raising my hand to be like, I'll do that, I'll do that, I'll do that. The junior staffer on the site who's just up for anything. So that's how I started writing about uh, celebrities uh, food, uh, fitness, and then also relationships, which became like a huge narrative throughout my career.
0: And you weren't afraid when you had those meetings to raise your hand and say like, I'll take that assignment. I, you know, I want that.
1: Not at all. I think, I think being a team player and be like, I'll do it. It, it wasn't usually my personality. Like in school, I was never the person to be the first to raise their hand, but I was just so passionate about writing and taking on any type of story that I automatically, it was very hard for me to say no.
0: So. Was is there ever an opportunity where maybe you knew like a colleague would want a story and you like kind of had to battle a colleague for it?
1: Uh, I can't, I don't think so. Cause a lot of the times the process is you're pitching the stories, right? Um, so it, it wouldn't be there wouldn't there wasn't a lot of opportunity where you'd be butting heads over who's gonna write it or if anything if it like came to a show at fashion week and who wanted to cover it like i think that's when stuff would that's, get the most that's what i was thinking
0: yeah yeah
1: okay so yeah in those cases absolutely it would be like a team-wide discussion of how are we gonna break this up and divide going to these shows and these awesome like events that we get invited to and do it equally. Um, but yeah, you could definitely tell that some people were were more enthused about it than others. But for me, I quickly learned that like I could not survive in that cutthroat fashion world. Like I love fashion. I love dressing up. I love shopping. I love, you know, following trends and of course reading fashion magazines. But I learned very early on that it was a different beat with the different expectation that I just did. I didn't feel like I was personally cut out for. I was like, well, whereas relationships like, yeah, let's write about feelings and getting cheated on getting your heart broken, all the messy psychological, you know, factors about dating and falling in love. Like that was, that was totally comfortable for me, but, you know, writing about, you know, the latest skirt trends and like literally fighting people, elbow to elbow throughout fashion week. I was like, I can't, I can't hack this.
0: (laughs) And speaking of relationships and, you know, your career, a big part of your career uh, was in the relationship space. So I have a theory that a lot of times you may not realize uh, like why you're called to a certain area or why something resonates with you. But maybe years later, years on down the road, you're like, aha, now I understand why I needed to be in the relationship space as opposed to let's say the fashion space, because like you were already so fashionable. So you didn't need to like improve anything there, but maybe with relationships, you're like, okay, there's some lessons I can learn and I'll try that out. What do you think of that theory? Is it stupid? Is it kind of spot on somewhere in the middle? No, I,
1: I think there's so much merit to that theory. And I think it, it boils down to In order to be a good writer, to be a good editor, um, a researcher, you have to have a genuine passion for the topic that you're working in. Um, And that's something that I hold true to this day. And that's how I lead my team. Like if I put someone on the restaurant beat, so they're covering, you know, and the past year has been bananas in terms of closures and bankruptcies and openings and you know, brands you'll never see again, which is so unfortunate. If someone isn't passionate about that topic, they're not going to perform well or give you the best content that you need or that your readers are going to really resonate with. So I think it's 100% true that like the organic desire to be in that world has to be there. And if not, you're not gonna be, you're gonna feel it in the everyday reporting and pitching story ideas like you're gonna be like oh my head's not really in this and it's gonna show so i think as both a writer and as someone who's managing writers and editors i think that's really important to keep in mind like there's a certain limit that you'll hit if if the person really isn't into the topic and then the key is like finding the topic that they are involved because it doesn't mean that they're not talented or they're not like a great writer but that like for you and i i felt like it was such a natural um, interest in that topic because we were literally living through it we were young single living in new york dealing with all of those dating challenges that are famous for that city Uh, and try to navigate it in our own personal lives, as well as share what we learned with others, which I think made us perfect for that genre. So,
0: But then I have another theory, which is when you're young and when you're getting clicks and you're publishing articles and you're writing, part of it was like, oh, these are really funny, like dating fails or stories. And I feel like there was almost a sense of like, I'm going to do this for the story as opposed opposed to like, I'm looking for love. Did you Mm. ever find that? Is that something you ever thought about?
1: I can definitely see how it could be easy to fall into that. But I was, I feel like I was always pitching from a place where it was, I'm not going to create a scenario, but I'm going to pick like, a detail of this scenario that either i've experienced or my friends have experienced and really explore that um so that would be a purposeful like intent that i would go into reporting a piece would be like okay um i'm noticing that all of my friends i'm trying to think of an example like all of my friends like anytime a girl is the first and this was this i'm talking like back in the day betty confidential reporting that you and like i, I thinking yeah, about
0: 2010 like, yeah like like
1: is it bad for a girl to make the first move and oh my god like we did that video series together and i don't know if you've looked back on youtube at it but like man it did not age well and thank god we've the whole entire society has like progressed since then because we were very stereotypical about the, <laughs> the kinds of dating topics that we were covering but yeah say like my friends where I was noticing like through talking to people in my life that there was a trend of whoever would ask the first date proposal would then get like their heart broken or something. Like say that that was a trend I was seeing. I would want to explore that and go purposely out to research that. So go on a bunch of first dates and see if that would be um the scenario. But I wouldn't say that I ever was like I'm going to go on this crazy date that I planned. And it's so over the top and so in your face and so like, out there that people are going to love this story. I never, I never did that.
0: (laughs) So now I'm seeing more of the inner workings of everything. So you were the one pitching the stories. You were taking the cream and then I was the freelance writer who was getting the stuff that nobody wanted. Like I was assigned articles that were basically like, do guys prefer girls with big butts? And then the follow up (laughs) to that article was, do guys prefer girls with big boobs? And I really got pigeonholed. (laughs) And I needed money. (laughs) I needed money. I needed to survive. And that's why, even like those video series, like I still remember there was the one like, should you have sex on the first date? And like, Mm -hmm. I remember I like, Said to you, I was like, "Well, Faye, would you do that?" And it was like I didn't know what to say. And like looking back, I realized I was like, "I can't believe I literally threw her under the bus because I was just trying to get like the topic off of me and back onto her." I remember you were like deer in the headlights. Like we didn't rehearse that that question.
1: I know, I know. It was it was a very. I'd say it was looking back. I can just say that it was a very fun time and like talk about. Just young people just starting out trying to find their footing. That's exactly what it felt like, what it looked like now, looking back at it. Um, and I think we learned a lot from the experience. That's for sure.
0: <laughs> for sure. And let's keep moving forward. So after Betty Confidential, what was the next stop?
1: So after Betty Confidential, I was there for like three three or four years. Um, moved up the ranks there which was great. Um, that was my first lifestyle magazine. That's where I found out, Hey, I really have a desire to get into the relationship space. And then, um, I found a job at your which is, was at the time still is a pretty big relationship website. Uh, so I joined their team and I helped them launch a few video series as well as columns. Um, there was celeb love in which I would interview celebrities about their love lives, which was as juicy and exciting
0: as you think it would be. Any, uh, any memorable stories that stand out? Uh, you just said it was juicy. So much, Give us the juice. I don't know.
1: Not so much stories as much as the people I got to interview. Like it was Jane Lynch and Leah Michelle and Blake Shelton. It was all the big names at the time. So me being me and thinking, wow, I can't believe I get the chance to talk to these people. I would, I was just so giddy just remember going to work and being giddy and filled with such nervous excitement and they would be um very rarely did I ever get to interview celebrities in person which is such a shame but it would be like this over the computer uh and man the mental roller coaster that I would take myself on before getting onto that screen was just bananas like I would have palpitations in the bathroom and then be like, okay, I have to do this and just giggle. For the first few ones, it, I barely could get word out. I would just be laughing and think that every single word they said was hilarious, which I'm sure they'll tell you. <laughs> Like it's not a good interviewing skill
0: well it it disarms people, which is always good unless sense. unless if it's like a really serious story and you're just laughing in yes, their face and you're just cackling at them that's not good why Why do you think you had those nerves? Was it being on camera was it the celebrities? was it maybe thinking that you're going to be judged later when somebody's transcribing the interview?
1: Mm, uh, I think it was both I think it was um. I put a lot of pressure on myself to do a fantastic job. I think that's something that I continue to do th- to this day. Like when things, when I know that there's a lot riding on something and especially in an interview like that, you have time constraints and you're limited to 10 minutes and you've got certain points and questions, you know, that you have to ask. It's, it's just, it has to be orchestrated. Well, you have to rehearse. Um, you can't just roll up and wing it at all. So there's a lot of prep work, which I think adds to the, to the nerves. But then when you're in it, you kind of need all that nervous energy in order to, to be very vocal and excited and exactly like you said, so personable and disarming that they give you a great snippet that nobody else got. Because, you know, as soon as they get off, with you, it's on to the next outlet and the next outlet. And they could have those answers rehearsed so far in advance and you would never know. And they tell e News exactly what they're telling your tango. And then you have nothing to work with. But yeah, that's your job as the reporters to, you know, bring something new to the table that catches them off guard. So then they give you something real and something that can give you a really great story.
0: It's hard to connect with only 10 minutes too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like, hey, how are you?
1: I am such, I'm like your biggest fan. Okay, now let's get into question one through 10.
0: Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, so now take us through the transition from your tango to your next step.
1: Yes, yeah, so your tango, I was there for, I think it was a year. It was great, learned a lot, obviously. Um, a theme throughout my whole career took a lot of great connections there that i met whether it was the interns that were working there all the way up to editors or experts that i still work with to this day um and then my first big shiny print magazine job came along at women's health um michelle promoleko was the editor-in-chief at the time she's still a very close and dear friend of mine she's one of my mentors um she played an integral role in me then going to cosmo and then me coming here to eat this not that which is so fantastic so back to our original point like how great and important it is to stay connected to the people who you truly value um, and to give you great advice and can be great friends and it's a two-way street um, in your career. I think it just, it could take you so far. Uh, but at women's health, they started as an associate editor, working at a print magazine, learning everything that goes into making a print magazine, which is so fascinating. Um, and so much different than digital publishing. Wow. That talk about how every single word has to have a meaning because of the real estate that is, it's taking up on that page is so important and so crucial um, and it's just a completely different ball game. Like imagine spending a month writing or editing a piece that you truly love. And then you work with a designer to get the images that really bring it to life and make it beautiful and something you couldn't even picture in your own head. And then having those two things merge on a page and now you need to cut a thousand words from your two thousand word story, and it's like you think you're done, and then it's the biggest heartbreak in the world. And then sometimes, and this was often the case, I was not as happy with it once it finally went to print. Cause I was like, man, if I just had those thousand words that I didn't have to cut out, like it would have been it was like a masterpiece, but still, that's the art of it. is it's a puzzle piece, and you're cutting, and you're thinking, you're like, oh my God. Oh, it's just such a different ball game than digital, um, but both of them are equally as rewarding. And man, what a process!
0: I was I was so. reading GQ the other day, and the stories always continue to like the back of the magazine. Oh, and yes. I think it's so funny because the layout looks like shit once it gets to the back <laughs> of the magazine because it's basically like they lay it out. It's really nice. Copy dump. Exactly. And then they have that extra 1000 words or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And it's all in the back of the book. And it's like, continued from page 27. (laughs) Please, uh, please jump to page 71. Please jump to page 93. And it's like all these crazy stories. And it's like, why am I even reading this anymore? Like, they're not even making this easy. (laughs) Right, right. No, but I
1: like, I wish we had that sometimes that would have been fantastic. But no, it was Um, I was editing the whole love and sex section for a very long time. And, um, it's funny, both at women's health and at Cosmo, um, I lived through the journey of that section being massive, like taking up 21 pages of the entire book, which is a lot of real estate. And then like that was at the beginning of my career there and then at both places and then by the end of it it was like you have eight pages this month uh, because advertisers obviously they hate this section they don't want to put their ads in it which case like this section isn't making us money so we need to shrink it and it was devastating to me because obviously especially at Cosmo I'm like but it's Cosmo like it had it's world famous it's historical for being like the beacon of knowledge and sex education that so many women lack, um, throughout growing up in this, in this country and throughout the world. So yeah, to me, it was like, you're not just cutting pages. Like this is a, it's a mega blow. Um,
0: and talk a little bit more about when you first started like big magazine, that devil wears Prada type of needing to show up, Right. Looking a certain yeah. way. Uh, like making sure I remember used to talk about like needing to like have your makeup on before you walked in the yeah. office. Uh, like feeling like you were being judged the moment that you walked in the door, and then feeling like you have to be spot on that entire day. And then like at the end of it, you're able to breathe and like be like, oh. Yeah. Like what yes. talk about like, that a little bit. I'm done with the work then.
1: <laughs> um, I mean, Double Wears Prada is a fantastic movie. I love it so much. Um and like other 90s movies, like, you know, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, where it's the quintessential magazine office. Um, and there was definitely some of that, just as similar to other industries where you have to be super presentable and look like you're representing the brand. So when I was meeting with clients and PR people and I'd have events after work, like, absolutely, I'm dressed to the nines, you know, almost every single workday. But then, during the workday, I'm locked in my office, like fretting over one sentence for three hours. So uh, there was very glamorous sides to it and unglamorous, but you felt like I need to show up. I need to be on my A game every day. Um, because I've got deadlines to meet. I have people to impress and I have, you know, I am women's health or I am Cosmo. I need to show up and represent that brand to the best of my ability um, but I think that that's not a bad thing I think it helps you weirdly think do your job better like there's days now the work from home life where it's like if I show up to the computer you know having not taken any time for like self-care for myself like then I feel like my brain is doing this tug of war where it's like, oh, but I'd really love to like, take a shower and do my hair and stuff, but like I really need to get this story up. So in order to make myself work better at my own job, it's just something that I know for a fact I have to do. I have to get myself ready so I don't have to worry about it so then I can just worry about work.
0: Let's go back to some of the glamorous stuff. I know people yeah. like that. What were some over-the-top yeah. experiences that you had uh, while you were working oh, in the magazine industry? Yeah.
1: I took a helicopter to Montauk just for dinner and then got helicoptered back to Manhattan. That was insane. Um, I was able to go to a Lady Gaga concert at Madison Square Garden and sit in a box and eat all the free food and drink all the free drinks. That was incredible. Um, There's so many like celebrity events and launches and stuff like that where, it's just the best planned parties you'll ever go to in your life and just all over the top decorations and you just look around and you're like wait why was i invited what this is insane like just incredible experiences and amazing press trips like i went to saint lucia on like the most romantic vacation for cosmo that was insane um let's see, I went to Montreal, like so many of the trips I really loved. I was like, man, I should have like screw relationships. It should have been travel (laughs) writing or something. But yeah, there was a lot of very glamorous parts and it was always the best when I could like bring a plus one or bring my friend, um, I know you and I went to a bunch. I would bring my sister to a bunch. I brought my mom to one. She met Bruce Willis. I was able to introduce her to Bruce Willis and she was like, dream come true. So so, yeah, I I felt very fortunate and lucky to have had those experiences because man, talk about just serious highlights.
2: Is someone you know completely overwhelmed with the personal statement and supplemental essay portion of the college application process? If so, Ivy and Quill College Admission Essay Consulting and Editing Services is the answer. Our team has reviewed over more than 20,000 essays since 2015 and our students are regularly accepted into the top 100 US universities and colleges. For more information, visit us at ivyandquill.com, and don't forget to check out our free resources on our site's IQ blog section. You can also watch our informational videos on our Ivy and Quill YouTube channel to learn more about what we do.
0: I remember when I was writing for Dan's papers out in the Hamptons, and one time Dan Retiner, the editor-in-chief, I mean, Dan himself, uh, he assigned me to a story because I was the events editor where he wanted me to go to as many events as I could go to in a day. So, wow. the point of it is like, you know, like the Hamptons parties and stuff like that. And there yeah. were so many of them in the weekend, and they have the celebrities and then they have the red carpet or yeah. the green carpet or whatever color carpet, <laughs> yeah. the gold carpet, like whatever they're doing. And the point of it was like, this really isn't that much fun because you're there. Like if you're by yourself, it's not like you have a friend. Like, I think what makes it meaningful, uh, which is what you alluded to is sharing that experience with somebody else, Absolutely. but being like around celebrities that want to be with their friends and not you. Yeah. Um, and then especially when you need to like go somewhere else and you're like, can I eat food here? Can I not eat food here? Can I drink stuff yeah. here? Can I not drink stuff yeah. here? And just being like, so self-conscious, like like, like, what's going on? Like my salary is X and this experience (laughs) is Y. Yes, And then it's like, I want to be Y, but right now I'm X and trying to come Mm -hmm. to terms with that. Have you ever had similar types of experiences? Oh, absolutely.
1: Any single time I ever did a red carpet, like it was that spot on. Just being there alone while everyone seems to know each other around you is the most awkward feeling and just not feeling comfortable being nervous because you're there to do a job yet. Everyone else seems like they're just hanging out and having fun. And the celebrities are like, mm, I don't really want to talk to you or, you know, I'll give you literally five seconds. So you're fighting for something which seems unnatural. So yes, I've absolutely had those experiences. I was pretty, you know, used to be my go-to move where, I'd have to go to, to an event and I'd try to get my job done in like 20 minutes. So as soon as I showed up, it was like, I don't want to schmooze. I'm not, I'm really not good at schmoozing. I'm just not, it doesn't come naturally to me. Like small talk, it, ah, I just can't do it. So yeah, I'd be like, okay, I have a job to do at this event. I'm going to go, I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to drink. I'm just going to get that sound bite I needed or talk to that person I needed or said thank you to that brand rep, you know, we really value your business and then try to get out of there as fast as I can, because seriously, you could go to an event every morning, every night. And there was a point in time when I felt like I was getting serious burnout just from events that like, enough, like I can't, even though they're amazing and people would give their left foot to be here, like it, it gets to be too much. That you that's,
0: can get sucked into that world. It's not good. <laughs> that's the side that I think people don't realize. It's like anything else. Uh, you know, too much of even a good thing is just too mm. much. So yeah. to yeah, yeah, to experience that and see that. And then on the other, you know, the other hand, now maybe there's not the opportunity to go out and go to events because of COVID or maybe budgets or whatever yeah. it is. And I bet you're like, I just want to go to a party. <laughs>
1: Oh yeah! Oh my God, I'm dying to go. Like to get stressed up, and I'll schmooze all the time now. Like, yeah. What vaccine did you get? Oh my God, I got Moderna. Like there you go. Is that how everybody does it?
0: <laughs> how did you feel after the vaccine? Because I was knocked out for like two days after the second yeah. dose. Yeah,
1: same. It felt like I got in a mini fender bender. Just my entire body was achy. I had a fever like very cold and hot. And yeah, it was not fun. But like This is
0: so worth it. So yeah. worth it. I had, I got Pfizer, but same, uh, same symptoms. It was, it was pretty brutal. Yeah. Uh, but like you I said, it was. so worth it at the same worth time, it. I think yes. uh, we'll find out yes. years from now. <laughs> uh, but, um, so you're at women's health, you're <laughs> having, you know, lots of great experiences. You're learning so much and you've been learning throughout your entire career so then i believe you go to elite daily is that correct
1: yes yes i did i had one fabulous year there where it was my first uh position where i was managing a team i had a team of i think it was like six or seven editors and writers and it was back to the digital world so back to that grind of instead of working a month on one story, you'd work a day on multiple stories. Uh, So it was just a lean and mean machine of, you know, owning and operating that relationship desk that was there, um, which was like fabulous, like so much more freedom in terms of, because of the fast pace, it's like, okay, what what are we gonna cover today? Literally what's happening in the world, what's happening in your lives, what are the good angles? Like, let's go. So it was very fast paced, um, but also so rewarding. Like so many of my team members from that time have gone on to write books, relationship books, um, which I've read every single one. They're super talented. Yeah. And it was a, it was very like truncated, but man, so fast experience where I was like, let's put you into shape and, you know, inspire you to be really good at online writing, but with a bigger goal in mind. And so like, it was, it's been great to see that come full circle for those people.
0: And then after Elite daily,
1: after Elite daily that I went to Cosmo, um, and I was there for three years, um, as the sex and relationships director. So that was talk about the, being on top of the mountain. That to me was like the dream job i had always loved cosmo i read it as a kid um or a teen. so yeah to be there to be in hearst tower it was it was a true cinderella story and crazy and the things i was able to do i had so much ownership of the stories that we covered which to this day was such an honor um to be kind of at the forefront of what our generation was talking about um and this wasn't that long ago so it's like yeah we were in the middle of the me too movement we were in the middle of you know women's rights and and female empowerment and all of these great conversations that needed to be had um and i was in it and trying to bring narratives and clarity and information to these really daunting topics uh but i think me and the team there we did, we did the best job that we could during that time.
0: Did you get the chills every time that you walked into work at Hearst Tower? Because I visited you once and I remember yeah. like walking in, I was like so nervous, like one of those, like, I don't know if I like belong here. Like, it's very <laughs> overwhelming.
1: Oh, definitely. Like it was, it was definitely a scene um, going up the escalators. There's a amazing waterfall. Like, so you're going up and the water's coming down and you're like, what? where am I? And then you get out into the um, Hearst cafeteria and the elevators. And it's just a who's who, uh, like editorial publishing. And you're just like, wow. Okay. um, So I'm here. And this is bananas. Yeah, I feel like that every day, every day. It's crazy.
0: Then when you're at the top of the mountain, so you achieved your goal, yeah. What was that like? So you're there, you're doing it, you're living it. You just talked about all of the important conversations that you were able to be a part of and basically yeah. speak to or for, uh, give people the opportunity to share their stories. So what was that like for you being at the top of the mountain? And then what do you do once you're at the top of the mountain?
1: Uh, it was a crazy feeling. Um, it's equal parts, how did I get here? And then also, oh no, I, I know exactly how I got here. And it's all the, all the steps along the way and the hard work and the late nights of the you know, shipping till 2 a.m. So you're in the office um, working on deadlines because the magazine is literally going out the door the next day. Um, so it was those two feelings at the same time. But I had this overwhelming sense when I knew it was time to leave Cosmo is that like, I've done everything that I think I could do in this space. Like I've written every story, I've edited every story, I've been able to work with incredible experts and like incredible writers and editors as well. And learn so much from from them, but also give them the tools. And I feel confident that like my time here is done. Like I can't contribute anything more than I did, um, which was then like, yes, I'm ready for the next step. But I learned, I learned how much, um, it's funny, like the trajectory from the beginning of your career, like you are very much so the writer, like you are the content producer. It is your words. And like, that is your day to day. You're just constantly grinding out stories and pitches. And then as you move up, and become an editor, it's obviously you're dealing less with your words and it's others. And it's, you know, finding that or finessing that art of keeping someone's voice and tone and original ideas and all of that amazing stuff, but, you know, refining it and making it more polished and better and bringing it to life and fitting it into a layout. And then, you know, the second or the next part of my career was like, okay, now I'm doing that with both my staff and their work, which has just been so rewarding. Um, And I feel like people don't tell you that that's the trajectory often in magazine publishing, like you're getting farther and farther away from being the person who's writing, but, and some people love that and some people hate that. Um, So that's why you, why, why you will see some people who choose to go the freelance route instead because their passion is in the writing and that's a hundred percent awesome and for them to figure that out and go that route great whereas I was like I, I love working with the people as much as I do love working with the writing um but no one gave me those managerial skills like I had to do that in my off time. Like I was reading books about how to manage, um, which had nothing to do with the industry. It was like these are business books, and I was like, wow, I probably should take it a business class or something. But yeah, and then now as an editor-in chief, like that is the most important part of the job. It's like, am I because I'm nothing without my staff, obviously, because I'm not creating the content like they are, or their freelancers are. So it's like, how am I? helping them to A, love their jobs, B, produce the best content possible. And like C, we all feel cohesive and you know show up to the computer at home every day with energy to keep doing this because the internet never stops. <laughs> and every day we just need to produce more content. And, and how do you get people to love that and love that process? Like that's been, that's where I'm at now. They can do an okay job. You're doing doing
0: phenomenal. The numbers speak for themselves. But a lot has changed from when you were starting out, let's say in 2008, 2009, 2010, to now in 2020, 2021, where I think there's almost an emotional intelligence that maybe wasn't really there when we were starting out, the way that you could talk to people, especially Mm -hmm. junior people. So- In terms of the way that you were treated maybe when you were starting out compared to how you treat uh, how you treat the people that you're working with on your team, I've heard kind of two different takes on this. So there are the people who feel like I had to grind and like I was shit on, so I'm going to shit on you. And then there are the people right. who are like, I had to grind and I was shit on and I never want anybody else in the world to experience that. So how do you kind of balance that? Because sometimes there is something to kind of maybe putting pressure on somebody, but at the same, like you want to be able to, like you're talking about, make your writers and make your team confident in themselves and their Mm. abilities, but at the same time, you don't want to coddle them that they get complacent, right?
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: So, and it's
1: hard because in my personal life, I feel like I'm a very sensitive person, um I'm very emotional and it's like there's there's parts of that that I do bring to the job because I do think it makes me a better manager but at the same time I yes like to your point I'm absolutely doing them a disservice if I'm you know being soft and and um not clear and I think for me I learned a lot um because I've had many many managers over the years and I've learned I've taken some things of what I want to like Emulate and I've also taken a lot of what I don't. Um, Because, yep, I've been shit on. I've cried of all the things Mm. you could think of, of like being a junior staffer that we all go through. Like, I was getting coffee um, as an intern at Maxim, and like, there was no one to complain to because that's just what it was. And you weren't, like, you literally weren't getting paid. And they were like, I like it, you know, black with two sugars. And you're like, okay that's just the, you know, it's just how it goes, but no, I think, um, I think it's important when you're leading a team, no matter what industry you're in, like you need to be just clear and firm, but also encouraging. So it's because I've worked for people who have never made their vision clear. And there's nothing more frustrating than that, especially when you're in a creative field. It's like, if you just tell me what you want, that gives me all the tools I need to make it happen. Um, So whether it comes to like a photo shoot or a story angle or anything like that, it's like if you are all wishy-washy, it made people's jobs harder um, because it's so hard creatively, there's a billion different options. So, um, I try to be as clear as possible. I try to give feedback often. I always have one-on-ones with my staffers once a month. And that's a time where they can literally come to me and tell me anything, whether it's like, I'm unhappy about this, or I'm struggling with the workload here, or like I had a ham sandwich for lunch and it was great. Like they could literally (laughs) say, and we could discuss anything. It's an open forum. I think Having that direct line of communication with all of your staffers is really important. I think if you're a junior staffer and that's not a policy um, to ask for it, to ask if you can have, you know, a 15-minute meeting monthly with your supervisor or manager, um, because for me, it's really important that I know what's happening, but without micromanaging. So I don't need to be in everything every single day because nobody likes the micromanager. Um, I've had that too and it's it's stifling. Uh, But at the same time, you can't remove yourself so fully that you're not clued in to what's going on. So that I feel like the monthly meetings with every single person has been the best way to be tuned in enough without being overbearing and annoying.
0: I love hearing that, and even your evolution, though, uh, in terms of your career and where you're at and what you've had to learn, and you're always learning and you're going to continue to keep learning. And when you talked about being at Cosmo and kind of reaching the top of the mountain and achieving everything that you could achieve, the Olympics are coming up, and you mentioned interviewing Olympians, and it kind of reminded me of an Olympic athlete who kinda, you know, knows it's their last Olympic games and is fortunate enough to go out with gold and be able to celebrate, you know, a successful career. And then after that, the question is, oh shit, like, what do I do now? And the fact that you were able to find something where you're energized again, you're excited to go to work and you had, probably one of the most difficult starts to your career as an editor in chief and a leader and a manager, because we know the timeline of when you started your job in February, 2020. And one month later, the world went into lockdown. So what was that like trying to make connections, let people know who you are. Like anytime you're the new person, I feel like it doesn't matter whether you're the top new person, the editor in chief or an intern, it's always hard being the new person. So what was that like for you?
1: Oh yeah. Um, it was, it was insane because we had an office in the financial district and I was there for literally two weeks before, uh, the city went into lockdown. So that was crazy. I was able to lead one in-person meeting and talk about nerves like yeah, Like you, you want to make a great impression you want to be confident you want to be likable i think that's the hardest part of being a manager is that like not everyone's gonna like you and that's it has to be okay because you're gonna make decisions that not everyone's gonna like and like you're not there to be their best friend where it's like it's that's hard because like being a leader you don't necessarily have that person. Whereas when you're a junior staffer, like I feel everyone talks, like everyone loves to thrive on the, on the, it's not even office gossip, it's office camaraderie. It's like, oh God, like we got to stay late during shipping. Like how much does this suck? But that's like, I had so many of my great friends I've met at work, you know, and it's like that going through those experiences together and being able to talk about it will bond you for life because nobody else went through it but you all, whereas you don't have that when you're leading the team minutes. So like, that's a weird adjustment that you have to learn to be okay with. Like everyone else is gonna go huddle after this meeting, but you're not invited to that conversation, which is like, wow, okay. So <laughs> like, I think that's something I learned very quickly in the first few weeks, but then also like, yeah, like talk about navigating my own fears about what was happening. Plus trying to be there for my staff who was like, I don't feel comfortable coming to work. Like I don't have the resources at home to work from home. Like I need help. So um, it was a very stressful time and you're trying to uh, be there for people both professionally and emotionally. Um, But I think we were able to, you know, it it was definitely, So there were so many unknowns that it felt, at least we felt like we were all going through it together. So uh, during that time, there was no like hierarchy or anything, it was more like, no, this is a human shared experience. So it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to be scared, all those things. Um, But yeah, I think just trying to also lead with positivity, just focus on the things that we could control, which is okay, how could we be of help to our readers? Because this is an amazing, crazy time where for the first time ever, not a single restaurant is open. Um, They have to grocery shop some people for the first time ever. Let's help them. Let's help them make the healthy, inexpensive choices. Um, Let's help them, you know, discover new delivery services in their areas. Let's teach them how to cook. Let's, you know... All of these different things. Let's teach new readers for the first time about like nutrition, just the basics. Um, So I was really head down, like, yes, of course, there's so much noise and and so much happening in the world right now, but like, let's just zero in and focus on the content, what we could be doing right now. Let's inform people to the best we can. And like, that's an ethos that I think will always equal success for digital publishing because you have to just stay true to what it is you're doing why are you on the internet and you know what are you going to deliver that's different from everybody else and if you take your eye off that that's when things start to get um, weaker in my opinion you don't stand out as much
0: i'm just smiling over here because it's just such a pleasure to hear you talk and and to have seen your career kind of unfold before my own very eyes and see where you're at today and what a caring and kind and emotionally intelligent leader that you are and also how passionate and brave you are when it comes to the work that you need to do and making sure that you're reaching as many people as possible and having tough conversations when they need to be had. Uh, It just speaks volumes about you. Um, So Faye, I'm just so proud of you. And I'd like to wrap up by uh, just having you tell people where they can find you uh, if they want to follow you and your career, um, as well as uh, yeah, anything that you may have coming up that you want to share.
1: Yes. Well, thank you so much, Justin. This was such a treat to be able to talk to you today, to get some time with you. I've missed you so much. Um, We definitely need to plan a hang soon because I would absolutely love that. Um, So yes, if people want to get in touch with me, of course, they can go to eatthis.com to see all the content that me and my team are putting out. They could go on Instagram. It's at eatthis, not that. But also my personal account is faybaby4. Um, I have a personal website as well. It's faybrenanwrights.com. And yeah, i not really, I don't really use Facebook um, personally. But yeah, we have a, a great Facebook page for Eat This Not That. And I need a TikTok. That's what everyone's telling me. And I think I just finally need to bite the bullet and get one.
0: <laughs> because you just have so much time to be making. I'm so much this.
1: time on my hands. Yes. yes.
0: <laughs> well, Faye, thank you so much. And thank is, you so much.
1: This was, this was amazing.
0: This has been a treat. Thank you. Oh, Thank you again to one of my best friends, Faye Brennan, for coming on the Writer's Way podcast. Faye is absolutely crushing it right now. And I'm just so proud of her. If you couldn't tell. So go follow Faye on social media, follow Eat This, Not That, and follow the Writer's Way podcast while you're at it. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star rating for me and write a review on Apple Podcast. That's the only way other people will get to hear these episodes and it'll help to keep this podcast going. So thank you very much for that. Until next time, I'm Justin DeMarco and this has been another episode of the Writer's Way podcast.
2: Move. Show me the fire you have inside to prove. So give me a word and give me a sign. Show me the fire that you have inside.